Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Government budgets don't work like household budgets. The assumption is that an independent central bank will raise interest rates in order to attract money into the country to finance the budget deficit. You buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship. And what I want to do is different. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, this week we look at liquidity, having enough cash to get by, whether you're a business trying to manage your cash flow or a bank wanting to make sure that there's uh, not a run on your money that could see you go to the wall. What is the role of liquidity in the economy and can downturns happen when there's too much or not enough liquidity? Is this something that economists don't pay enough attention to? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, if you uh, run a business, however small it is, you'll know all about cash flow. In fact, the smaller the business, the more you'll know about it. I mean, your business might be profitable, but can you get through the periods when income is down? Like Christmas, for example, quickly followed in the UK uh, by the January deadline for tax payments. You can tell I'm talking about a, a, a personal experience here. Uh, this year has not been so bad, but some years, I mean, it's a, it's a shocker. Uh, you might have a, a profitable business, but do you have the liquidity to get through? Well, banks, of course, face liquidity questions as well. Do they have the cash if there's going to be a run on the bank? Or do they have the reserves to settle interbank transfers? We're going to look at all of that today. But the bigger question is, what does the level of liquidity do to the economy? If if we're all holding cash as a buffer and not spending it, does that mean we're holding the economy back? And what if we invest in less liquid assets? Is it helping the economy or is it just propping up the finance sector? So liquidity today. So Steve, I want to start with a man. I know you're not a particular fan of his, and um, I can understand, you know, some of the differences. I think there's some commonality as well in that you're both reasonably progressive economists. You probably know who I'm talking about, Paul Krugman. Oh, dear. Okay, yeah. In his book, End This Depression Now, I do like this, and it's worth talking about. He refers to, not his article, a 1977 article in the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking about the Great Capitol Hill Babysitting Co-op. Oh, God, okay. Yes, I remember this one. Mm Mm-hmm. They issued 20 coupons. This is really worked in on Capitol Hill, and basically they needed babysitters. So they'd babysit for each other. The couples would babysit for each other. And they issued 20 coupons to each person, and each one was half an hour of babysitting time. So you'd basically exchange the coupons, uh, you know, in, in exchange for, for that babysitting. The problem was some people used them more than others. And then when those got, uh, some of them got low on coupons, they didn't want to spend them. They became reluctant to go out, which meant, of course, that there was less babysitting opportunities for everybody else. And so the whole thing dried up just because of the balance of the coupons. So uh, what they did was, um, it, I mean, because it wasn't, you know, it, it, and if you look at it in, in the terms of, you know, that as a microeconomy, the economy has basically slowed down, not through a lack of productive capacity, but because some people were, in effect, hoarding coupons mm. you know they were getting them and not using them and others didn't want to use theirs because they didn't have enough 
So that is a liquidity problem, isn't it? It's a form of a liquidity problem. And that, now like it, it, it's usual, all his stuff leaves out the existence of bank, debt, and money. Uh, and it's all about yeah. interpersonal transactions and so on. But the fundamental point going on there is that people, uh, it, it is not just the number of tokens that exist, it's how frequently those to- tokens turn over that's related to um, uh, the, the income of the entire system, whether that's an economy or the baby sitting co-op here. So you actually start with a presumption uh, where you relate the number of tokens to the, to the amount of economic activity you think is going to take place. Now, if you then find that people are, uh, when people find, well, I've got them running low on tokens, uh, then one way to cope with that is to, as you say, go out less. So what happens is the velocity of circulation of tokens falls. And that's what they uh, realised in that, in, that, uh, in that toy economy model. And the answer to that um, was that they just issued more coupons. I mean, so that all of a sudden that problem went away. No one got any richer as a result of having more coupons. Each coupon was still the cost of babysitting, so it didn't have an inflationary impact, but it mm. did solve that liquidity issue. And, and this, and this, I mean, this, it, I, I wish I could send this little that, this part of the conversation to Elon Musk, because that's the the um, the, the the key issue here is the turnover um, and the creation of money solved the problem. You didn't have enough. The, the government, quote unquote, in that particular you know, toy model, creates more tokens. Uh, therefore, the rate of uh, people don't feel the same pressure of a small number of tokens and spend more freely at the level they were doing before the, the system came in. And you get a recovery. And so the government running a deficit, fundamentally in that particular case, uh, creates uh, debt-free money for the rest of the people who then spend. And you go back to a normal velocity of money. So I think it, it, is, it is an apt example, but it, it leaves out the most important element, of course, that what people are, uh, what makes people spend less rapidly is a high level of uh, financial commitment. They think they have to meet their obligations. Um, mm-hmm. So you want to avoid bankruptcy. Uh, you want to avoid having you know, creditors chasing after you. So your most important uh, thing in some ways is to cover your, the financial claims on you uh, before you do your spending. And then if you find that, uh, you know, you, you, if you're worried about meeting those financial claims, you do less spending, uh, but that doesn't affect the number of tokens in existence. So what you get is a decline in the in the economy instead. And this is the classic classic paradox of thrift. Yeah, and, it, and of course it is overly simple because it is just one commodity as well that we're talking about is babysitting. So if you gave people those tokens and they could spend it on anything, if you gave them that money, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to spend it on babysitting. They... Um, they might spend it on another stuff, and that 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 issue uh, about that particular sector doesn't go away, does it? But it's um, so how how important then is liquidity generally? Is I mean, it's it's it is another word, isn't it, for just us just not having enough cash, basically? Well, it's saying you, your your financial commitments. If if you if you if you're illiquid, uh, your financial commitments on a daily basis exceed your cash flow on a daily basis. You can still be asset uh, positive in the fact that your actual assets exceed your liability, so you're not insolvent uh, or you're not negative equity, uh, which, uh, which is a point I want to distinguish regularly because there's some inevitability in negative negative equity uh, in a monetary economy for some parts of the system. Um, but uh, yeah, you you have a you know if if you can't meet your commitments as and when they fall fall due, you're you have illiquidity. If you if you if you if your liabilities exceed your assets and you therefore can't meet your short term 
debt obligation than you're insolvent. So um, mm. they, and they are key issues that only turn up in a monetary economy, which, of course, means you need, a, you need a model of the economy, which is monetary, to be able to understand this stuff. And guess who doesn't have that model? Paul Krugman and all the bloody neoclassicals. <laughs> That's why it was such a simple example, therefore, because he didn't want it to get too complicated. Cause... I didn't want to talk about the real world. I mean, that's, that's not a planet, according to, compared to these guys. That, that's what I find so frustrating. You know? I, the, the, but Paul Krugman is quite progressive, though. That's why, you know... I yeah, mean, he's politically progressive, but he probably... Mm. He, this is the same thing that John Hicks did back in the 1930s. Mm. Um, he, he occupies the space that a more sensible analysis could, could occupy. He's the, he's, he's, the left, he's, he's the left side of the neoclassical envelope. And uh, you don't want to meet the right-hand side of the envelope. Uh, so what, what actually happens is uh, a nice, progressive, politically okay, you know, black with a beard, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, is the is the public face of neoclassical economics. The beating heart of neoclassical economics is a bunch of right-wing turds that make the Koch brothers look look uh, socially acceptable, and <laughs> with, in terms of their views, I'm not saying that they're bad people in that sense, but you know, the the, the, the Thomas Sargent, the uh, the, the, the Lucases, the uh, all all this mob uh, have a com- completely and it, it, their vision of humanity uh, wouldn't even suit you know, solitary predators on the on the Serengeti plains. It's uh, it's on, a totally Come on, tell huh? us what you think. Uh, so, uh, okay, so let's <laughs> let's let's look at. I want to come back and talk about you know there's different types, of, yeah. Obviously, different sectors within the economy where liquidity is important. And I talked about you know my own personal experiences going through through a dry month of January for cash flow because most of my businesses aren't, uh, most of my customers aren't paying me anything to do do anything in January mainly because I'd rather spend the time on the beach, uh, so I can't blame them. But um, but bank liquidity is an interesting one, isn't it? Which is, and I guess there's two sides to this, isn't there? First of all, there's, have they got enough reserves to be able to manage their interbank transfers? And have they got enough capital if there's a run on the bank? So if we look at those babysitting vouchers sitting in reserves, I can sort of see a comparison there. I might have got this wrong, but between central banks and the amount of reserves. So if you imagine those coupons are actually for interbank transfers rather than for babysitting, if there's not enough of them sitting in the various reserves of of, uh, of, of banks, sitting in the central bank accounts, uh, for those interbank settlements to happen, then the logical thing would be for the central bank to say, well, okay, let's just issue more reserves so that we can keep the system flowing. Is that a fair analysis, a fair comparison? It's a, it, it's a reasonable analogy, and like it comes down to what is the function of money. Uh, and in this particular case, because we're talking about uh, this, you know, effectively a central bank uh, model, your, the, the ultimate responsibility of central banks is to maintain the solvency of the system. And what, what you had in that particular case, and, and also, you know, it, it's... it's also related to the rate of they have, they, they have you know objectives imposed on them in terms of the rate of inflation, the rate of unemployment, and so on. But the fundamental one is to make sure the financial system works. Now, if you have hoarding in that case, it doesn't necessarily mean the system won't work. It just produces less GDP, quote unquote, uh, in that in that uh, babysitting example. Um, but fundamentally, you have a central bank that wants to make sure that banks don't fail. Um, at a systemic level, you can have failures at an individual level, and there are lots of those in America, which has an enormous number of banks. Um, and the, the, the uh, pardon me, the regulating authorities are always uh, announcing the shutdown of a bank 
the move of its uh, depositors to another bank, some consolidation process, etc., etc., at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so it doesn't get into the news cycle. And the depositors uh, in, the, in the bank that has gone insolvent uh, uh, wake up the next you know, Monday and find that they have a bank account exactly the same numbers at a new bank. So that, that, that process of individual, um, letting some individual banks fail, but making sure that doesn't hit the depositors, that's a major necessary role for the central bank to maintain a functioning payment system. But just going back to that analogy where, you know, uh, we've got hoarding going on. Uh, so you've, I mean, that could also be a bank that's so much bigger than all the other banks, couldn't it? So if you had one bank, which... Uh, has big reserves, so it's able to, uh, you know, it's not concerned at all about um, about interbank settlements because it's got loads of cash basically. So it can it can loan out a lot of money to people and not worry about that money going, some of that be, being needed for interbank settlements because it's got loads of cash to be able to manage that. Smaller banks will have a problem with that, won't they? Because they won't have as much money to sort out as a for, for settlements they'll have less in reserve so they're they're operating as a, as, uh, as a i think we're getting a quite a bit in the, 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 the reserves are important but let's i think you really have to think in a more realistic form about you now what what bank uh, balance sheets look like and the, the primary responsibility of a bank is to have positive equity okay that, yeah. that is okay which is a separate thing though i'm just talking about because we do get central banks stepping in don't we when there's if there's not enough liquidity uh, in in bank transfers, they will do what has happened with uh, uh, with that scheme, um, where they'll just put in more to yeah, to appear yeah, then, and and then that's that's the that's the, that's again like back to the babysitter example. That's the the internal co-op deciding just to issue more tokens, yeah, uh, because the lack of the, a shortage of tokens for some of the uh, players means the players aren't playing, and therefore you have a downturn caused by the financial sector and. Uh, so, so like that, that's 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 the backstop role that a central bank has. But if you look at let's just take a look at from, from the point of view of an individual bank. So an individual bank to be to become a bank, you must show you have uh, assets that, that exceed your liabilities, substantial assets that exceed your liabilities. And yeah. Some friends of mine established a bank over the recent years in the UK. So I, I heard a few of their comments about the whole process they had to go through to do this. And then those assets. In effect, when when you imagine a bank starting out you know, with no loans, um, then what it's going to have is all its assets are going to be either reserves or government bonds, preferably government bonds because they, they yield a higher amount of interest than reserves do, and then they have uh, no they have no liabilities and they have uh, but no income earning assets. So their role is to lend. And when they lend, then they create an income earning asset for themselves and also the matching liability of the deposit that's been created. And uh, they then service that, um, they maintain their equity by the income flow coming from the loans they've created. And the higher the gearing they get between their equity and their assets, the, the, the more the, you know, the, the more that their assets are in forms of loans rather than uh, than reserves, for example. I'm not saying that they lend from loans, reserves to loans, but they, they, the more loans you have, the more income earning capacity you have. And that can mean you get to the point where your, your loans might be, say, 10, 20, 30 times your equity. Now, then you're in trouble. And this is, this is the, what we saw during the financial crisis, that the, the, the temptation for banks is to leave their equity as much as they can to make as large a gain as possible. But what they then expose themselves to is loans going bad. 
So what they have in, in terms of practical uh, uh, appearance, they have a, a, a set of loans which are classified as you know as active, valid. Then they have underperforming loans where the, the interest payments aren't being made and therefore the interest that isn't being paid is accumulating on the debt and the debt is increasing that way. But then they have bad loans where loans have gone bad and they've got to take a hit to their equity on that front. So the danger for banks is if they get too highly geared between the, the amount of loans that Quite near the, the, the value of loans they've extended and the amount they have as their equity, <clears throat> if too many of those loans get transferred to bad loans, then their equity can go negative. And that's the. And that, that, <clears throat> in fact, it's two different sorts of money, isn't it? So on the one side, you've got uh, the, the equivalent of those uh, babysitting coupons, which are, the, which are the reserves, which are there just for moving money around. And on the other side, you've basically got your, the equity the bank equity, and that's got to be able to cover if there is, for example, a, a, a run on the bank, have they got enough money to be able to pay people back? It's not about it's not about paying transfers between banks in their own funny money. It is about paying people back in cold, hard cash that they put money into the bank in the first place. That's the division, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. And you've got to be, and this is what the confusion we've made is that people think the reserves flow into the loans. This is a bit like mm. thinking when you put oil in your car, that, that, that then gives you extra miles per gallon. I'm sorry. The oil is to make sure you, you're, if you're talking electric, old fashioned gas car, of course, the oil is there to make sure your pistons don't jam. Uh, they're not there to make sure the pistons move. And, and the confusion of reserves with loans, which the conventionals do, and especially bloody Paul Krugman. So, you know, I'm not, not going to give him too many prizes for his <laughs> nice babysitting analogy. Um, that, that which isn't can, his anyway. This isn't his anyway, that's true. That confusion, uh, it just means we don't understand how, the, how, the, how the, the, you know, the economic car moves. And we see mm. this nonsense like bloody um, uh, uh, Elon Musk's tweet uh, a couple of uh, you know, today on uh, you know four signs that you don't understand that you don't uh, you can't manage money and the, I said the fifth sign is that you post an infographic like this. I haven't seen that. I need to. So that is mu- so we're recording this on Monday with, with, so. without having done the accounting. First of all, yeah, I mean, basically thinking the government should be running a deficit should not should be you know saving money. Right. The government should be saving money and should spend less than it gets in. That means okay, what the, the government should be destroying money. That's what it's saying. And, and the man, back to the babysitting analogy, even the babysitting analogy uh, would be improvement on what he posted because with the babysitting analogy, you know, the central collective of the babysitters, oh, we better produce more tokens. Let's make them and distribute them. And that then, as you say, increases the solvency of the individuals in the, um, in the collective and they can therefore decide to go and have more GDP, which means going out and partying more. Um, mm. Okay. Typical for an economist not to understand how a party it, works. It, it bizarre, isn't it, really? Perhaps they don't get invited to enough of them. I wonder why that would be. So, uh, okay, when we come mm. back then, I want to look more about the impact of, of managing liquidity and the impact it has on the economy. So, Because on, on the one side, I've been thinking, well, it's good if everyone's got a buffer of cash, but it's not good if that cash mm. isn't being used. So what does that do for the economy? So uh, for, for businesses or for individuals mm. or for banks, so we'll look at all of that when we come back. It is the debanking. By the way, I'm loving the fact that you've gone from being an Elon Musk fanboy to uh, to you know openly criticising him now. The, the turnaround is enormous, Steve. Okay, so we're when he's talking about what he knows about, he makes sense. Criticising money, he's talking through his hat. 
And the, 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 the bastard, the guy says, you know, he always comes for the importance of working from first principles. So Elon, you are not working from first principles and trying to understand money. But he must you want to listen? Come to me. I, but he's an engineer. I thought you wanted engineers to run the economy. And it's Elon Musk. I, he must know what he's talking about because it's Elon, surely. Well, an engineer, he could pick up a copy of Minsky and work it out for himself in 10 minutes ago. Oh, shit, all that stuff wrong. What are those people talking about that I used to take seriously? That's what he should be doing. Right. Elon, that's your homework for this week. Okay, yeah, when we come a back. Copy of, get a copy of Minsky and model the monetary system and then uh, you might change your infographics. Right, very good. All right, it's the Debunking Economics podcast with uh, me, Phil Dobby, and Steve Keen. We are back in just a second. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, we are looking at uh, liquidity this week. We've had the uh, Paul Krugman uh, babysitting coupon analogy, which uh, took us a little way towards understanding it, perhaps. For, for most people, you know, it's have I got enough cash for, for my liabilities, isn't it? Can I, have I got enough cash to pay my mortgage this week? Uh, have I got enough to cover the, 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 you know, all the household expenditure, any loans I've got? Um, but I mean, it's. But most people, when they think of liquidity, they also think of cash flow, don't they? It's can I get through? So I might have enough money through the year, but have I get got enough to get me through the dry months? And if I've got to save for that, then that is money that I have just parked somewhere, which isn't being particularly productive for the economy. So. From a public policy point of view, does it make sense that that money is just parked or should we be finding a way to, to make sure it's being used in a, in a more advantageous way than just like a lot of money I have sitting around waiting to pay the tax man? Yeah, and that's the, exactly the problem, not the tax man so much, uh, but the, the fact that people hoard, hoard money. And when you hoard money, it, it, it isn't a case that you, that you, you know, whack it in a tin, though that does happen. Uh, it's that you, you slow down how fast you spend what you have. And that means that on an individual basis, if you look at your expenditure minus your income minus your expenditure, and you see that you have, if you're talking about your dry months there, in the dry months, your expenditure exceeds your income because your income has fallen. <clears throat> in those months, your response to that, oh, I'm now my, my, my bank account, my cash reserve is falling, uh, your response to that is to spend less. Now, what that means is you may get to the point where your income once again exceeds your expenditure, and that's great for you. So you start to accumulate cash in your account. But what's happening collectively is the shops that you used to shop at aren't seeing you anymore, and their income has fallen. So at the aggregate level, know that your, your act of, of, of hoarding more of the 
money supply and circulation doesn't increase the money supply and circulation. So what it means is your uh, act of saving becomes an act of dissaving for somebody else. And that's actually the point of the cartoon book that people would have seen my marketing company promoting uh, uh, partly ad nauseum, but I think I can, they're, they're working, they're succeeding. Uh, funny money, because I, I, I model a, a, um, a hypothetical economy uh, consisting of uh, three uh, Republican uh, rednecks, uh, billionaires in the heart of America, and they decide that they're all going to try to save money. What happens is the economy falls in size. And this yeah. is the problem. That's, that's what, again, the, the, the incredible importance of, of, of Keynes' observation of the paradox of thrift, which people have never really got their heads around. You want money to turn over. Now, if you have factors which mean people spend what they have more slowly, partly because they're trying to accumulate what they're spending with, then you have an economy which is going to fall in size uh, with, uh, because of the financial system. And that's what, again, what central banks are supposed to try to prevent. So you do want to have a means to encourage people to spend in that situation. Uh, but the means have to be realistic. And I'm afraid most of what I've seen central banks propose is ways to encourage that uh, a long way from realistic. Well, is it central banks or is it banks generally? So when I put money aside, well, if it's very short term, I stick it into premium bonds, you know, just in the hope that maybe I'll win this month, uh, which I've won. I won £25 last month. So, you know, there we are. Yeah, well, uh, and, well. and £50 the month before. So it can be done. Uh, but many, many months with nothing at all. Or I put it in the bank. Now, say I put it in the bank and I think, OK, I'm going to earn a bit of interest till I need to pay the tax man on uh, this money. In effect, that is, uh, I mean, first of all, it's money that's turning over more slowly. It, in fact, isn't it money that gets destroyed in effect for a while until I um, pull it out again? Because it's money that I... No, it's not being, it, it's not being destroyed. I mean, to, to destroy money, you have to do an act which reduces the liability of the banking sector in the aggregate. Right, but I've got a loan, now, with, now the, what I've got a loan with the bank. I'm not paying off the loan, but I'm putting it back in. Doesn't that have the same impact as sort of paying off a loan? Uh, hang on a second. You, you, are you paying the loan off at all, or are you just saying you're... Um... Well, I've got a... I've, so I've got a mortgage, and I put the money into the same bank that the mortgage is, is with. Well, okay, for the point of this argument, say I've got a... Uh, uh, an offset account for a mortgage my, offset for my mortgage. Account, yeah. So mm-hmm. I put it into the into my mortgage, uh, even though now I'm going to pull it out again. Then that's that's money destruction, isn't it? Because I'm because I'm basically paying off paying down my loan. So there's yeah. If you're doing anything to reduce your liabilities and reduce the bank's assets, then you've, you then you have in, in, inverted commas destroyed money. Um, so that, that that is the dilemma I think we face that we have such uh, and this is one of the one of the dangers again of a huge level of private debt. Uh, we have such a amount of uh, of, uh, of outstanding debt that people's response is to um, to uh, spend more slowly, and so the velocity of money has declined. And uh, one of my favourite data series has actually been was actually invented by a colleague of mine, uh, but then uh, discontinued, unfortunately, called Money of Zero Maturity, uh, which is like a, a general way of saying. Uh, what is something which you can use immediately for spending, and and uh, that uh, so it, it's <clears throat> it's it's more general than just M one, M two, M three. Okay, mm. so a more more sophisticated uh, element. But if you look at the velocity at that velocity figure back in the <clears throat> pardon me back in the nineteen sixties when the, they first they backdated the data as far as they could in the nineteen sixties, the velocity of money of zero maturity is roughly two meaning that it turned over twice a year. Now, you then take a look at the profile. Uh, when, the, when the inflation of the 70s started to fall in, it actually rose to three and a half. 
Well, that's quite a dramatic increase in the rate of turnover of that money. Uh, but then we had the peak levels of the, the private debt getting to ridiculous levels starting in the uh, in, in the 1980s as well. And it's fallen from three and a half to just below one when they stopped recording the numbers. So that money is turning over half as much. So you need twice as much of it to get the same level of economic activity. And that's back to the babysitter's example. Mm. So is so is liquidity management something that you know banks should be helping, or, or we should be helping banks with, but also should banks be helping individuals with, or should we, you know, let them hit these cash flow problems? I mean, if we if we help them out, if there was a way of saying, well, okay, if you can show that through the year, we want we want to balance out your spending. If we if if we know your cash flow goes up and goes down, that is a conversation I can't have with my bank. They just say, yeah, sort it out yourself. You know, you're running a business, yeah. nothing yeah. to do it, with it, us. It's something which you it's something which you want the managers of the system to be aware of because what we're fundamentally trying to do is to ensure that the financial system enables transactions rather than inhibiting them. Mm. And what we've got when the, when people face a liquidity crunch, which is what you're facing in the month of January, uh, and when the, when it, that when it's a systemic thing, which is far more far far worse, uh, then in that particular case, people cannot spend and we have a you know, liquidity crunch and that means the financial sector disturbs the real economy and that's been what's happened in every financial crisis throughout history it's been the financial sector uh, that has caused the crisis the sole exception of any scale uh, is is covid that was the nearest thing to the sort of exogenous shock that economists like to model that actually caused a downturn. Otherwise, the downturns have all been through liquidity crunches and solvency issues for the banking system. But if I've got a liquidity um, issue, that means I, I save to try and get around it. And that helps the you finance do. sector, doesn't it? No. No. Well, you mean you but put if, money if, in. If, I, if I go, well, January is going to be pretty bad. So uh, first of all, I tell the kids, no Christmas presents this year because January is always bad. Just bad luck. Christmas always falls just before the month of low income, um, and uh, and I've got to pay tax at the end of January. So I start saving September, October, November, December, so I can get through January and a bit of February. So that money, September, October, November, December, isn't going into the uh, you know isn't going into my coffee shop, uh, and uh, you know my crushed avocado and toast every morning. Uh, it's going to the bank to save up so I can get through January and February. So the so the finance sector benefits from that imbalance. Sort of. I mean, we're talking about you putting deposits into the system. Uh, I mean, the real the, the, again the the, the the financial sector benefits when you take on more debt. And uh, one of one of the problems yeah. of this situation is that when you do have a liquidity uh, crisis, a you're going to be potentially forced to take on debt because you've got to borrow from the bank to be able to have the money to cover your your cash flow deficiency. But b your willingness to do that is you know is is close to zero because then you have a continuing financial commitment afterwards. And it's this dilemma between uh, you know, cash flow and de- and financial and debt commitments uh, that. T- tends to torture us and ends up in events like the financial crisis. Talk us through very quickly then the the steps for that financial crisis as it relates to liquidity because it is just a, a, a slowdown in demand, isn't it? Because people just don't have enough cash, or was it being driven from the finance sector? What caused it in the first place? Oh, what it causes is that you have too much. You, know, you have a boom caused by too much credit. Uh, you know, you know, credit being a far too large a proportion of total demand. So I guess this, the neoclassicals can never understand this. I know the kick at uh, Paul Krugman because they see they treat credit as being like an interpersonal transaction. And, and Fisher covered this beautifully in his uh, Booms and Depressions in 1932. He said that uh, a man-to-man debt, and using the language of the time, a man-to-man debt doesn't have any impact on the economy when it's paid or extended because... Yeah. 
the fall in spending power of one party is offset by the rise in spending power of the other. And in the aggregate, there's no particular change. But he said it's different with a, with a bank debt. Uh, when a bank debt is paid off, the money simply disappears. So Fisher understood uh, the endogeneity of, of, of money in the banking sector. Now, what that means on the other side is uh, that credit, uh, when, when banks extend credit, they create additional spending power. Your spending power is the cash flow you get out of your income earning plus what you borrow from the bank. And then when you spend that money, uh, that, that becomes income for the people that you spend it on. So the credit-based demand is a large part of total demand. Now, what happened back in 2008 was that in America's case, it reached 15% of GDP. So it's like an additional 15% of demand over and above that coming out of the sale in goods and services. Then it fell to minus five. So you have 20% of GDP turnaround in credit-based demand. And you look back, you find the yeah. similar thing in the Great Depression. All, all the major downturns have negative credit. So that's, that's the causal mechanism. If I want to put a, a, a reasoning side behind it, um, it's, my easiest example is to give a, a simple example of uh, all the borrowing we've done by the firm sector. Uh, and then you look at what the income distribution of are in a very simple three-class um, system. So you have income either going to go to the, the capitalists who borrowed the money for investment in, for, in, in firms, I'll call that the firm sector, uh, the workers who are going to get it in wages, or the banks who get it in interest payments. Now, as you have a rising level of uh, investment, banks are borrowing money, oh, sorry, firms are borrowing money from the banks, so their interest charges are going up. But they're also causing a boom, which is like they make wages rise as well as employment rising. So income minus wages minus uh, interest payments. The minus wages bit has got two causal factors in the economy multiplied together. The wage rate times the number of workers. That increases um, quadratically. You've got a linear increase in the income. Uh, the quadratic overrules the linear and you get uh, lower profit than you expect and people then stop borrowing money. Credit goes from positive to negative and you have a crash. Um, so th that's getting a, a bit airy-fairy, but that's, that's the sort of framework that I have to understand how a financial crisis comes about. And it's amplified by the fact that most of the money we borrow is to gamble on asset prices. Mm. And so that when an asset price decline, uh, when people, when you get a level of, again, the, the, the driving force for, for asset prices is change in, in the level of debt. That's, that's, that, no, that's, that's credit. So credit gives you your price level. Acceleration of credit gives you a change in your price level and nothing accelerates forever. So when the acceleration slows down, and that can often be because you've got you know, reached a level of, of debt to income that people get uncomfortable with, um, you have a cease of borrowing and the credit uh, and, the, and the asset price rise goes negative. And when the asset price goes negative, then in people's personal balance sheets, their assets are falling, the liabilities are constant. They're afraid of a solvency. Uh, crash as well as the liquidity crash and they stop spending as well and then you have a huge financial crisis. Right. But this time it's different isn't it because liquidity, personal liquidity is less of an issue isn't it because if we believe the statistics and I know that a lot of this will be sitting in you know, the, the bank accounts or actually in those assets that you're talking about of the, of the very rich but supposedly we are saving more. Uh, because we got a, a we only save again. Hang on, I know. Hang well, on, I know. I was, I, I, that's why I was, put, you know, putting a proviso in there that it, is it savings really? But it's it. But it's, the, it's, the savings, the, the savings, is a record of the creation of money by the government sector. Right. 
Okay, and, and it's also a record of the amount of money debt being created by banks because when you borrow money from banks, your savings go up. Why? Because your debt's gone up. Right. Okay. So the amount of um, so, so the amount of money that's sitting in people's bank accounts on aggregate is is larger than it was before we went into the into the in, yeah. in, into the pandemic. So, and, and the one the one positive is that that larger most of that larger came not from a, a borrowing splurge with the banks. So some yeah. of that did happen. Came from the government. People were forced to go. And, mainly the government spend twenty yeah. percent of GDP, twenty five percent of GDP is a deficit, and bang. That that money turned up in people's bank accounts. Wow, we're saving money. No, the government's creating it and it's turning up in your bank account. Right, but for most people, that means well, I've got more money. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm, so I'm more liquid, and the fact that they haven't been able to spend it has has added to that. So you know, in theory, we are less worried about as individuals, less worried about liquidity now than uh, than we have in the past unless of course we've gone and, and tied and, it all up in shares yeah, and, and the share price uh, died. The, the, a lot of it did go that way but okay that's that's a large part of this this is the the covid recovery after the COVID, or the covid crisis itself and the recovery after it are the best argument going in favor of fiat money creation yeah. because if you take a look at the um and i recommend people to take a look at the st louis fred database where the vertical bars and any chart will show you the the uh, duration of a, the beginning and ending of each uh, recession, officially recorded recession, and the thinnest bar from 1964, and actually from the 19, uh, from the Great Depression forward, the thinnest bar is the COVID crisis. And what happened during the COVID crisis? The government created a huge amount of fiat money by having, uh, you know, all the, all the spending that was done with the fallen tax receipts as well. There was a huge deficit. That huge deficit, dollar for dollar, turned up in people's bank accounts. We call that saving. Mm. I wish we'd grow up and realise that it's not government saving. It's, it's not personal saving. It's government money creation yeah. that does that. And what it did was, in some ways, return us back to the state of the fifties, where people had so much cash in their bank accounts compared to their liabilities and their outgoing that they were freely spending and you had a booming economy yeah so why is that not happening now because we have this bunch of neoclassical economists some of them called paul krugman <laughs> uh though he belonged on the other side of this particular argument in the in the, in the mainstream envelope who are obsessing about government debt and say we shouldn't create it yeah. government debt creates private assets yeah. this is All right. the, the, the key absolutely accounting based point of mmt has got nothing to do with you know uh uh, unemployment uh, rates or uh, policy settings. It is simply the accounting that creates money in private bank accounts. Because that money is there, people, the, the increase in the amount of cash you've got, I mean, you're, you have more cash in your own account, courtesy of government money creation, than you had beforehand. Therefore, your, uh, your cash, available cash, it exceeds what you see as your outgoings, you are more likely to spend. Yep. And because you spend, everybody else is spending as well, what's going out of your account is being matched by what's coming back into it by the whole circulation process. So if they understood that, we, we, we would have far less financial crises. And it's, it's the lack of understanding of that by, by mainstream economists that is the, a major factor is why we have financial crises. So in the babysitter's example, people stopped babysitting because there weren't enough vouchers yeah. uh, around because some people had hoarded. So even though there has been a lot of money that has been created by the government, it's not being spread evenly. So if you think uh, that, you know, we all need to have a, a buffer to repay loans uh, so we can meet our commitments, uh, you know, over those months till, we, you know, revenue picks up again. Rich people, of course, will have bigger reserves of cash. Like, like for example, Nadim Zahawi some, had no problem at all, uh, not only paying, what was it, three and a half or four million pounds to the tax office that he was hoping he was going to get away with. He also had another one and a half million 
uh, to be able to cover the fine that was imposed on him as well. So he's obviously fairly liquid uh, <laughs> to be able to pay out that sort of money uh, just on a whim. Um because we don't see him selling houses or anything like that. So he's doing all right. Uh, so rich people, you know, have big reserves of cash or other assets that can be turned into cash so they can take on more commitments. They can have bigger loans, for example, because they because they have that buffer, that liquidity buffer. Poor people have got no cash, so they can't take on loans. And even if all being well, they could meet the, their commitments. They will have this big fear that what if something goes wrong because they have such a small buffer, mm. liquidity buffer. And yet we want the poor people to have the money because they spend it faster than rich people spend it. So how do we get over that problem? Because, again, it is a they might have a, you know, a lifestyle that they can afford, but they hit this liquidity problem. And so they need a, a well, the, bigger, the, the, bigger the, the, buffer this, proportionally to their income. This is the this is the um, income different distributional aspect of government spending, mm. because government spending overwhelmingly goes on people with low incomes. And this is the other annoying thing about the focus on the government running uh, the surplus obsession that uh, mainstream economists and, and conventional politicians uh, have acquired from the economists. Uh, the poor spend because they have to, mm. okay? And, and you're always, if your income is low or you, you know, you've been through an experience of poverty, and I had a couple of little briefs, experienced that myself in my own life, in that situation you're always thinking about money because you haven't got it. And, and therefore you, you spend less and you're always trying to make sure you've got a, you know, something resembling a buffer inside that you don't want to get caught up in the loan sharks, et cetera, et cetera. But that is, that is the, you know, the, the, the people at the bottom end of the spectrum who would spend the money if they had it because they have to spend. They're the ones who are always worrying about money and the ones at the top of the system who think that they're good money managers don't need to think about it because of the huge buffers they've got. So if, you, if you're cutting back on government spending, you're not hitting the richer spending, you're hitting the poor, and therefore increasing the, uh, the liquidity constraints the poor uh, feel and causing less spending, and, you, and, you know, and that's the sort of economy we've ended up in, uh, where the poor can't afford to spend. But this need for liquidity, I mean, it means that, yeah, poor people are spending mm. less because they want to make sure they've got that buffer. The rich people have got that buffer, uh, and they, they don't care too much, and they can't spend all the, all the money they've got. So yeah, uh, yeah. I wonder whether actually the, the easiest way of fixing that problem and getting a more productive economy would be say, well, what are you keeping that buffer for? Oh, chunk of it is paying your tax. Well, maybe we just increase the tax threshold so you don't have to worry about paying tax. Let's let's take out those those spending commitments so you don't need quite as much of a buffer. That would be a good first step, well, I mean, wouldn't it? Well, this, this is partly the issue. Tax, as we know, doesn't fund government spending. It re- reduces the amount of government money creation. Uh, but of course, where the money can't get taken out of in terms of tax affects the distribution of income in society. And uh, <clears throat> a large part of being wealthy is avoiding that problem. Which uh, your friend who tried to evade a million dollars in, what was his name again? Zadim Sahawi. So he's the, I mean, I'm not sure if you've been <laughs> keeping up on the news here, Steve, but he's the. No, I try to avoid British news these days. <laughs> so he was, the, my health he, was the, he was the chairman of the, uh, of the Conservative Party. He was sacked over the weekend. Uh, because of tax evasion. So, I mean, some people would say... Yeah, well, that's, he, that's did they normally get away with tax evasion? Mm. Mm. And therefore, I mean, the, when the government money is taken out of circulation, given how long we've had income tax now, which is about, what, 70, 70 or 80 years of income tax, uh, the wealthy can afford accountants to have, work out ways to avoid paying their shares. So the burden of removal goes on the middle class and the poor. Mm. 
Yeah. Now that 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 is the issue. We we have one of the issues we have to get away from. Uh, one reason I'm you know have some sympathy towards the ideas of transaction taxes as ways of taking money out of circulation rather than income tax. Um, I don't think there's any chance of getting it through. But while you do it using income tax. The result is that that uh, the, the rich can evade it by relocating where their income comes, or you know, classifying their expenditure as as uh, related to income earning when it's actually related to buying you know carpets to decorate your uh, your flat in number ten. Um, and but the poor can't do that, so they're stuck with the with the you know the, the literal tax obligations fall on the poor; they don't fall on the rich. So, do you think then, as a public policy objective? Um, it makes sense to say, well, okay, how do we reduce the necessity for this this liquidity buffer for people on on lower income? Does that so that more cash is getting spent, so that they you know have a have a better lifestyle, but also we're we're seeing money turning over faster in the economy because money which is being saved or put aside is is now getting spent. Does I mean that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? <clears throat> That's that's a good macro argument for it, and that, that, I mean one of the few things Milton Friedman ever proposed that I have some sympathy for is the idea of a negative income tax. You know, by a certain mm. level of income, then your tax rate is negative, um, which is again a form of universal basic income. And one thing I, I like about an idea of a UBI, pardon my, <clears throat> sorry, getting a bit crog there. One thing I like about the idea of a UBI is it does free people from that worry about oh if I spend I won't have any cash. If there's a cash flow coming in. Um, which gives you the capacity to spend, and you don't have that same panic effect. That means you don't you don't spend, and you therefore have an economy where money turns over more freely, rather than being I mean, quote unquote hoarded. So, okay, we'll leave it there. I'm surprised you've not followed up on, or you're not you've not been following the Nadine Sahari story because it's a corker. Because by the way, when he he's the he mm. was until the weekend the uh, the chairman of the the, the Tory party. But when he was evading tax and was hit with this, whatever it was, one million, one and a half million fine, uh, which means he was guilty of sin, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So, oh, <laughs> so he was the man in charge. I, I, of the I've, tax always, I've, I've always, I've, I, I mean, I've always been a great fan of Monty Python, but I think saying in the last decade, particularly after I moved to England back in two thousand and fourteen, yeah, they couldn't. Um, they couldn't. Is that Monty? They can't Monty do Python satire like the real comedy. world is right now. That's, it's not. A, it's it's, a, it's not a it's not a comedy series. It's a documentary it, about England. It certainly is, isn't it? it? Goes from bad to worse. Anyway, well, I'll leave it there for now. Uh, we'll talk to you back in the studio here again next week. So we'll see you then. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. I don't know how you can live in the UK, which Steve is right now, not because of the Nadine Sahari story, because it is all over the news. That's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back again with Steve next week. Thanks for listening in today. Catch you then. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com.
to listen.